Thank you for joining Bevel Talk, Season 4, Episode 4. Hydrogen-induced cracking is an important issue in the welding industry. Today, we're talking about post-weld heat treat. Let's get right into it. Welcome to Bevel Talk. Thanks for joining us today. We're speaking with Al Sherrill, induction heating specialist with Miller Electric today. So, Al, in some of our previous conversations, we've talked about induction heating, resistance heating, flame heating. We've talked about preheating. We've talked about hydrogen bakeout. Today, let's talk about post-weld heat treatment. Why is it so important? How is it done? Um, and just go that route for our listeners. Sure, sure. So post-weld heat treat is a metallurgical process. Uh, uh, tempering is what it is. And what it is is that uh, you're you're basically relieving the stresses out of the weld joint, and you're trying to make that weld joint uh, a little little more malleable like the base material instead of being so brittle, right? So the idea is that when I'm welding, um, I'm, putting in, I'm putting in this material that's melted and it refreezes and it can, you know, cool off rather quickly and there's different metallurgical properties metal will have depending on how fast you let it cool down. So when you have this base material, um, the nice, strong, malleable material is got a lot of metallurgical, metallurgical uh, microstructures called, you know, like perlite and ferrite and things like that that are, are standard. But you can have some different structures, very hard structures. One in particular is called martensite, that when you melt the material and freeze it real quick, that martensite forms uh, when it crystallizes, and that's hard and brittle. So that's what happens is that You've got this area uh, where you've put in this weld metal and it's very hardened because it has a lot of the micros, the metals frozen in a way that it's very hard and brittle and they call it martensite. When you can see it under a microscope, the, how the crystal looks and, and uh, it's just a different shape that makes the metal more brittle. So we want to try and get that martensite to reform and relieve those stresses to make it more like ferrite and, and iron, a perlite again, right? So we wanted to get back to those old microstructures to make it more like the base material where it's real strong and and uh, can handle expansion and contraction a lot better than what the brittle material was, right? Because if we leave the brittle material alone and we put it under stress, we're going to crack it open like an egg and we don't want to do that because uh, that can that can cause bad things. <laughs> You're in a power plant. You don't like things to pop open when you got 20,000 pounds of steam and explosions and stuff like that happen that you don't want to happen. So you have to take a lot of care in these critical applications. You know, you're building a building, a bridge or anything like that. You got to you gotta have those microstructures right so the metal's right. So a post-weld heat treat is that tempering method, uh, that stress relieving that we're going to do on the material to make that happen. Yeah. And so post-weld heat treatment differs from hydrogen bake-out or from preheating mm-hmm. in – procedure and how it's done, how it's set up, it's generally over a longer period of time than hydrogen bake-out or, or preheating. Right, right. So it really comes down to the temperatures you're using here because uh, these kind of procedures, uh, again, you don't want to get this material back to a point where it starts changing the metallurgical strength. You don't want it to change state. Uh, so there's a real critical temperatures involved here. So they actually have you come up to that temperature very slowly, and then they let it soak there a while to make sure that it spreads out throughout the material fairly evenly. And then you come down off of that temperature slowly, 
to make sure it doesn't re reorient itself uh, in a hardened way again. So they have a procedure in place to where they'll call out, you know, you can go up to a certain temperature, like 600 or 800 degrees that's well below these critical temperatures. And then they'll say after that, well, you have to reduce the rate of heat. Um, you might be heating at 100 degrees an hour or 400 degrees an hour. It's called out in the specifications, the codes, uh, what they're going to want you to do. Again, a bunch of smart people have figured that out already. We just got to follow that. And the engineers will call that out on the procedure or um, uh, whoever's reading the code will call that out. So, you know, the procedure is that you'll go up to that six or 800 degrees as fast as you want to. And then once you reach that, you're going to start slowing down to the required rate and then you're going to approach that soak temperature. And the soak temperature is going to, you know, change depending on the material. A lot of times with carbon steels, you're going to hear soak materials like 1,050 or 1,150 or 1,250 degrees. That depends on this, the type of carbon steel you have, right? And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get right underneath that critical temperature that, you know, things change state. And they don't want it to change state. They want it to be right under that. So you're sort of playing with fire there, right? If you overshoot that temperature, you can ruin the material because you'll get it to change state. And then if you had normalized material, you'll ruin the metallurgy. And guess what? You got to you gotta cut that section out and redo it. And it costs lots of thousands of dollars. And so you can see it's fairly critical to make sure that this process is, has good control. So once you get to that A3 critical I mean, you know, just below that A3 critical temperature, you're going to let it sit there and soak out through the material so that the whole area that was affected by that weld gets to go through that stress relieving process. And then then you start after a while, uh, then the time that you soak at is determined by like the thickness of the material. So most of the codes will call out, well, uh, we want you to be there at least an hour. Uh, but from then on, it depends on the thickness and it's going to be like an hour per inch of thickness. So if I got a three inch thick part, we're going to soak there for three hours. And this is all called out in the code. It's nothing that I call out or Miller doesn't call it out or anything like that. So you have to be familiar with what the code calls out, right? And so you'll soak there for that period of time so that that stress relieving operation can happen. And then it, the code's also going to say, okay, then when you're done with that soak period, I want you to cool down at 300 degrees an hour or 400, whatever it is they call out to make sure you don't cool down fast enough that it sort of rehardens that area again. So that, that process usually takes, I mean, for real thin materials, your process might take an hour and a half, two hours, uh, for thicker stuff. That might be an eight hour process. You know, if you're dealing with four and five inch thick stuff. Outdated equipment threatens productivity, profitability, and safety. Learn how Miller XMT350 Field Pro Systems with ArcReach can improve your job site at MillerWelds.com slash ArcReach. How does setup for post-weld heat treat differ from setup for preheat or hydrogen bake-out? Okay, well, uh, usually when you're dealing with preheat, you have to leave the weld joint open, right? So I have to set up heat zones around it, you know, so a few inches away from where you're actually doing the welding. But now the welding's been done in stress relief, so we're going to actually apply heat to the whole area. So I'm going to have a coil wound all around that that joint. Uh, so I'm going to be covering the joint and everything with insulation because we're going to bring up that whole area up to temperature. So setup is uh, also a higher 
temperature range. So we're going to have to use thermocouples that can handle those temperatures. So there's a style of thermocouple that's been used for decades out in, in the field um, that you sort of spot weld onto where the weld is. And uh, so you have these wires uh, that you actually have to attach to the part. And most of the time, I mean, you could do something like TIG weld it on or something like that, but they do have some devices that are very popular that just uh, you store some energy and some capacitors and then you press a button and it sort of snaps this wire on. It's like a little tack weld real quick, sort of like a stud weld or something, but it's just, you know, welding on this wire onto the part. So that's what people usually use. They call them a thermocouple attachment unit. And it's usually just like a pair of needle nose, what it looks like, and they dump the energy through the needle nose and it tacks the wire on. So we have to put those wires on first before we apply any insulation. So you go around and the code again is going to call out, uh, hey, I, I want to know the temperature at 12 o'clock and 6 o'clock and, you know, on a pipe. You know, they're going to want to see the temperature every so often. And the reason they want to monitor that is that they're going to they're going to have a chart that they're going to have you record all right, so all these thermocouple feedbacks aren't just going to control the machine. Now they're actually going to record them because we're talking about critical stuff here. And so you're going to have to show some proof to your customer that, hey, I did this right. And so here this chart's going to record these temperatures and show that rate of heating, the rate of the, what the temperature was at soak, and then what the rate of cooling was to prove you did what the procedure said. So people look at that and go, well, can't you just trust what I'm saying? Well, on a critical weld, it's not so simple. I mean, we live in that world where if some accident should happen, they have to prove that it was done right. If it wasn't done right, you could be liable. Uh, you could be, you know, a lawyer could be knocking on your door saying, hey, you know, where's, what's going on? So they're going to verify you did everything right. So if an accident does happen, let's say a, a pipe does crack open in a power plant or a weld in a, you know, bridge breaks, and it's going to cost a lot of thousands of dollars or, you know, God forbid somebody get hurt, something like that. Uh, you're going to have to prove that you did what you said you were going to do and that you followed the procedures. So that chart is very critical. So the codes are going to call out that, you know, when you're doing this size of pipe, we're going to want to see the temperature at 12 o'clock and at 6 o'clock and at 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock on bigger stuff. You know, they're going to want to see maybe one spot or two spots or four spots of temperatures so you can have it on this chart to prove that you did what the code said to do. Yeah. And uh, so that setup, I'm going to have to hit that those thermocouples on where the code says, then I'm going to cover that with insulation and then I'm going to wrap my coil on top of that. So that's, again, it's, it's a, it's around a 15 to 20 minute setup on most pipe setups. All right. So I, I've got a tack weld on however many thermocouples, I get the insulation on, wrap the coil on, and then I got to uh, go over and program the machine. And all the program in the machine really is, is what's your ramp rate, what's your uh, soak temperature, and uh, you got to tell it those few pieces of data and it can, you know, take over from there. When you hit run, it uses that data and starts running the cycle at those temperatures you commanded. Well, it sounds like it's a lot more in depth than hydrogen bakeout or preheating. Well, I mean, it is monitored a lot more since you're, since you're dealing with very critical stuff. It usually when you're doing stress relief, um, yeah, you, you, you can't just sort of set anybody on it that doesn't know what they're doing or else you could be setting yourself up for problems. So you want to make sure that the people are aware, the people that are setting it up are aware of the code you're trying to follow. They don't have to interpret the code. It might be all in the procedure, what you got to do, but they got to follow it right and, and realize how important it is because if they just slap something together and 
gee, I didn't have my thermocouple in the right spot or I didn't have the coil wrapped around the joint right. Um, those codes are very strict on that you have to be within 25 degrees of the same temperature all the way around the girth of the pipe, right? So if I'm one side of the pipe is 1,200 degrees and the other side's 1,100 degrees, well, you just failed, right? You're, you're not going to pass quality inspection. So you have to know what you're doing and set up in order to make that proper. Okay. Okay. So what options are there for post-weld heat treatment? Um, I know we're talking specifically induction, but what else is out there that, that can be used? Well, the incumbent really is the resistance heating because that technology has been around for decades, right? So we had talked, a, we had talked on a resistance a little bit in the past. It's really just a, a ceramic pad that has a nichrome element. So it's really like a toaster element, right? But you can have some control with it. I mean, since it's electrical, I can I can control when I'm sending power to it and, and taking power away. So I can control off of a thermocouple just like I do with my induction unit. Problem is, is that, uh, you know, even though it's been around for decades, it's had its problems for decades too. Um, these pads, they have that nichrome wire going through it. And that nichrome wire gets up to like 2,200 degrees, very hot. And then when the pad turns off, it gets cold again and then you turn it back on so you're turning this pad on and off on and off on and off that nichrome wire starts to wear out over time because it's going through all these heat cycles and the pads eventually will get a hot spot in them or they'll break so when you try and reuse these pads um, you got to really make sure that they're quality pads before you stick them on because some of these larger pipes you know if you're working with a 12 inch pipe you might have you know, 10 pads or 15 pads around it. I, I'm not a, a setup guy for resistance, so I'm just throwing a couple numbers out there. So if you're a resistance guy, listen to this, you know, don't don't balk at me if you say, no, it only takes eight pads, you know, because <laughs> I'm not the resistance expert, that's for sure. But in any case, uh, however many pads you put on there, you have to make sure they're in good shape. And uh, that's that's what these setup guys do. They have to make sure that they're they're set right. And even when you look at it, I mean, when you start cycling the temperature, it's possible for these pads to break while they're in the middle of a heat treat cycle. And then that makes it difficult. You you either have to get in there and swap it out while it's still above temperature, which is very dangerous. But I, I have seen people do that. and I, I just, yeah, it makes you shriek hoping they don't get burnt or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, they also have to do that before the material goes out of that 25 degree tolerance. And, uh, you know, that's, that's difficult to do. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's been around, um, there's other mechanical parts in a resistance unit that can fail. Like there's contactors that turn those pads on and off. If they fail during the middle of a cycle, it's going to, you know, screw you up there. And remember some of these cycles can be five, six hours long. So if it fails in the middle of the cycle, you've wasted, you know, a day's production or something like that. Um, other things, I mean, on the efficiency scale, we talked about efficiency of resistance versus induction at one point. And so you you also have to have more power going out to a resistance unit if you're doing that larger stuff. I know a lot of them run off of a 100-amp drop or 120-amp drop, something like that. Whereas uh, I use I, – I usually get comparable performance out of a 35-kilowatt uh, induction power source, which draws about 50 amps off a 480-volt line. So, you know, there's some differences there on how much power you have to bring out to the field to run so many machines. So uh, there's some differences there um, in efficiencies. Okay. Now, just like I asked with the preheating, are there any myths or common misconceptions about post-weld heat treating that you'd like to try to correct? Uh, well, I mean, there's 
there's some, I mean, uh, there's people out there that'll, that'll say that we can't do some of the larger stuff, right? So uh, we've, we do have uh, these magnetic fields that we use for heating that if you set two machines next to one another, if you don't know what you're doing and set up, you could have some interference between them. Uh, they sort of act like a transformer with one, one another. But if you set up the coil right, um, there's techniques you can use to where I can put two units right next to one another and run them. Um, you sort of uh, set up one of the coils to where it cancels out that that problem, that uh, interference, and then it runs just fine. So some of the misconceptions are that, oh, you can't do anything that requires more than 35 kilowatts. But alas, we have <laughs> figured that out and able to do a setup to where I can get two units right next to one another. So now I can apply 70 kilowatts, and I can do some pretty big stuff with 70 kilowatts. So I would imagine. Yeah. I, I think that's part of the the learning and the history, understanding induction, understanding its capabilities, where where it shines, where where it doesn't with non-ferrous materials and and really how to do it will will serve all of us better in industry to get more done faster. Yeah, so, yeah. That's so, good. Well, Al, thank you for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed your time. We've enjoyed yeah. hearing from you. Um, if you want to learn more about induction heating, check out our show notes. We'll have some links to induction videos and articles for you there.